When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last nine years... We've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Doing all right. Got my Joie de Vever back. Good. Good to hear. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear I know you that. were concerned. You were con- you, you felt like there was a real Joie de Vever deficit yeah. mm-hmm. yes. on Friday's Power Hour. Uh, but I got it. I'm yeah. back. I'm glad to hear that it's back and dare I say... Nailed it. Uh, you know, we had a big weekend of uh, mixed martial arts, Ben. UFC 268 obviously took place out there in New York, Madison Square Garden. A lot of action, a lot of storylines extending into this Monday. Uh, you know, we, we normally check in with each other, do a little banter here at the top of the show, maybe talk about uh, some other stuff that's going on in the world of MMA. We're going to skip that this week because we got a ton of good listener mail uh, from the people out there. At home, and we want to get to as many of them as we can. So we're just gonna we're gonna shuffle the order of the show around a little bit and just go straight into listener mail here. See how many of these uh, messages we can get to the first half of the show, and then we'll go into our our normal three round format. But we want to start here though from David James over on Patreon. He wrote in the UFC recorded uh, broke the record for most significant strikes in an event. The previous record was eighteen hundred eighteen. At UFC 238, Sahedo versus Moraes, this card was evenly distributed violence with a combined 1,973 significant strikes. You know it's crazy good when John Anik yells, mixed martial arts! <laughs> Wait, is this something we're really keeping track of? Like I, combined significant I'm gonna, strikes? I'm going to be real frank with you. I did not check. I did not fact check this message uh because it comes in from one of the beloved patrons of the co-main event podcast i believe it this was a very strike strike friendly event uh with a lot of action from top to bottom is it a is it a, a valuable measuring stick though how many strikes or significant strikes are thrown in an entire event no because first of all thrown doesn't equal landed Anyone who's ever watched a Michelle Watterson fight can tell you that you could you could have a lot of strikes thrown without having a lot of strikes landed, especially if you start when they're two feet outside your reach. But they also there's all the, there's other ways that you could potentially game the system, right? Like how many total fights do you have on the fight card? What kind of matchups do you have on the fight card? If you, I mean, if you had a bunch of fights where they're evenly matched and they go a little while, then you're probably going to get a little bit more significant strikes. Uh, if you get a bunch of first round knockouts, then you probably won't. So I, I don't know. There's the, that statistic doesn't necessarily tell me anything. It is though one of those statistics where when you read it off, 
you do find yourself trying to walk a fine line between telling people, hey, we're not a bunch of bloodthirsty savages in this sport, but check out how many times people were hit in the fucking face during this last one. That's what tells you how good it was. You can, you can make yourself feel a little uncomfortable with stats like this. If you're not, It's the same thing whenever anybody has to throw out one of those Max Holloway qualifiers where they're like, oh, this fight had the most strikes landed if you don't count all of Max Holloway's fights, basically. Uh, and Or like when Roy Nelson would set those records for like most significant strikes absorbed uh, in the UFC and stuff like that. And you're going, what are we really keeping track of at that point? Man, I don't know what uh, Michelle Watterson did to draw your ire here. She's just Come sitting on, at home, man. didn't even fight last weekend, hasn't fought since May. She's just sitting at home, one and three in her last four, trying to keep her head down. And here's Ben Folks throwing grenades at her on hey, the I like Michelle podcast. I, I like Michelle Watterson as a person. Uh, you know, she she gives you what she's got as a fighter, but she's also sort of the the archetypal fighter for. She's gonna start throwing strikes when you are on the other side of the cage. That doesn't that doesn't deter her at all. She's just gonna throw them out there anyway. Some there's there's we know there's some fighters out there who who are known to beat the shit out of the six inches in front of their opponent's face. She's one of those fighters. No 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 tea no shade as they say. Jay. <laughs> well, regardless of whether or not we want to take this total strikes number to the bank as an indicator of how good the event was. UFC 268 was, in fact, a great event. You had at one point, Ben, six fights in a row, and with either a first or second round KO or TKO, all the way through the preliminary card there on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, just a just a bunch of knockouts, basically, is what happened, uh, leading up to the main card, where, of course, four of the five fights went to decision. But at the same time, you know, you still even had some exciting ass fights. I mean, Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler went to decision, for God's sake. And that was yeah. one of the most exciting fights we've ever seen in the octagon. And so uh, all the way around, I thought that this UFC event delivered. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot in the last couple months on our show about the current UFC programming strategy, which seems to be to distribute the hashtag just some fights throughout the ESPN Plus Fight Night events and really load up on these pay-per-views. We've got several in a row with two title fights uh, on each pay-per-view. And, and you know what? I think you got to give the UFC props when they're when they're doing it right. I feel like they actually are kind of doing it right at this moment yeah. uh, within the bounds of what is demanded of them for them to get their riches from ESPN. I feel like they're, they're kinda, they've kind of figured out a system to do it right because all of these pay-per-views really do feel like big, special, important events that you do want to pay for, and then you get into one like UFC 268s. And it's just, it's pretty much fucking slobber knockers from start to finish. So you can't yeah. complain, really. Well, and see, that was the point I was trying to make a few weeks ago when we had someone asking, hey, would it kill them to distribute these a little more evenly? Because so, you have some of these fight night events that look pretty weak. And then you've got like this main card where you could have taken Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler and made it the headline of a fight night event. And then it becomes must-see TV. But... If what we were complaining about before was you are watering down the orange drink so much that you're not 
creating premium content worth paying premium prices for, then we can't then turn around and complain like you're saving all the good stuff for the pay-per-views. That's sh- that's how it should work. And obviously the, the roster is not deep enough. Nobody's could be deep enough to satisfy the overwhelming schedule right now. So if you're going to have this good stuff saved for something, it should be the shit that costs 60 bucks, right? Yeah. And like here you see it in action. Like this is a whole main card where you're like, yes, that in the aggregate, that is definitely worth paying for. And I think especially as people's like, just digital media, like viewing cons- consumption habits change. You have to rely on that more. Otherwise, if you just have one good fight on the card, people will be like, uh, maybe I'll catch a, a pirated stream. Maybe I'll just catch some highlights on, on Twitter. Uh, and I don't need to pay for the whole thing. But if you're s- sitting down and you're telling people, we're going to offer you two to three hours just on the main card of stuff that you actually want to see and don't want to be dealing with uh, a stream crapping out on you, don't want to be dealing with trying to find it, it's worth paying the money to see it. This is exactly that kind of fight card. And and it does make an, a compelling argument for like why it is worth paying for. All right, I'm going to put these two together because they are both about the same topic. This one from Brandon Boyd, who writes... After a long day of work, I needed a cold one, so I hopped on down to Cubby Sampson's for my usual Strohs and Old Crow. Okay, nice. Uh, as I pulled into the gravel lot, I noticed all the neon shut off and not one light in sight. I got out of the car and walked up to the door. It was locked. I banged a few times on the door and heard a familiar voice from the other side of the door. Get the hell out of here. Bar's closed, old man Maynard screamed. Gray, it's me. Let me in. <laughs> Maynard opened the door and I walked in. The place was trashed, broken glass everywhere. Even the TV was smashed. Gray, I said, what happened? He turned to me, took a shot of wild turkey, took a long drag off his Pall Mall (laughs) and said, almost in a whisper, the Cheeto man got Frankie. Then he just asked discourse. Then Mr. Peanut Butter, beloved character from uh, BoJack Horseman, (laughs) follows up with his message to say, is it time for Frankie Edgar to hang him up? At this point, realistically, his title aspirations are over, and I hate seeing him take damage. What's he got left to prove? And of course, we've all seen the punch face. I guess the kick face photo of Frankie Edgar looking like a damn Simpsons character when... uh, uh, Marlon Vera, Chito Vera lands the front kick, third round front kick that ended this fight in a KO. Uh, it can feel smarmy, I guess, at times, or like we are uh, being disingenuous about our true feelings when we, the fans, try to pull the rug out from under a fighter, try to cash their career in and say, hey, man, it's time to walk away. But in the case of Frankie Edgar, uh, who is now down there battling at bantamweight after starting his career as as a UFC lightweight champion. Currently, he's lost four of his last five and two in a row, Corey Sandhagen and Marlon Vera now. Uh, you know, and a guy that we have historically liked a lot on this podcast, now 40 years old, to see him get stopped in this fashion and to see the aftermath of this fight. Uh, it was a tough one, man. It hurt a little bit. And if the question is, do we think Frankie Edgar should retire? The honest answer is 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 probably that it's past time, I would think, yeah. for him to do that. And if the question is, what does he have left to prove? The answer is nothing, because this man was already the champion at a higher weight class. And he moved down to featherweight, and then he moved down again. And, and somehow, Frank Yeager still looks like the smaller guy out there. Two weight classes yeah. beneath where he first started. Two weight but, classes beneath where he was a UFC champion. But there's no one out there at this point who is like, oh, maybe Frankie can make flyweight. No, no one's saying that. <laughs> no. Everyone is saying 
Maybe it's time for the old man to go home with his spectacles and his newspaper and sit in front of the fire and let somebody else do the heavy lifting for, for a while. Everyone except him. Because when asked about it before this event, he was like, I'm going to be doing this till I'm on my deathbed. And I don't know if that was supposed to be like a feel-good moment. If it, if it was supposed to be like, oh, yeah, hell yeah, man. But then, especially when you go out there and you watch him take another bad knockout loss, you just go, I hope somebody talks you into a different way of viewing things. Because they, that's hard to watch, especially when you like the guy. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's hard enough to watch to people you're indifferent toward. And when you develop an affection for the guy after so many years in this sport and you see, you know, he he took that flying knee knockout to Corey Sandhig and that was a bad one. I mean, it was a great highlight, but that was a bad one to have to be on the business end of. And then he goes out there, takes that that front kick knockout to Chito Vera. Another great highlight that's just tough to watch if you give a shit about Frankie at all. And he's in that position where he's got enough of a name that the UFC is not going to throw him a bunch of gimme fights. And even if they wanted to throw him a bunch of gimme fights, the same way we've seen him do with guys in higher weight classes where, let's say, find you a peer to match you up against. No more of these you know, young up-and-comers who are still trying to make a name off of you, but let's find you somebody who is in the same place as you. There aren't a lot of guys like that at bantamweight in the UFC. The lighter weight classes just don't have as many older fighters in general. And so if you're looking around for other 40-year-old 135-pounders that Frankie Edgar could fight in the UFC, there's not a ton of them because they've all either retired or you know been shuttled out of the UFC. Like There's just not a whole lot of other Frankie Edgar-type people for him to potentially fight. And so then he, you know, he's been in this long enough. He's making a pretty good paycheck from the UFC. They... People hold him in high enough regard that if they do keep him and keep offering him more fights, they're they're probably going to be tough fights. And so it just makes you think there's probably more of these nights ahead of him. And that's that's a sobering thought because you can only take so much of that, man. Yeah, I mean, it can only be a feel good or defiant moment when you say you're going to do this until you're on your deathbed. If the following night Marlon Vera is not out there measuring you for it and showing up with a bunch of lumber and nails, man, like <laughs> that, that just makes Don't it make feel. Don't make me laugh at this. Don't make me laugh at that. Chad I mean, I'm just saying that makes it feel kind of ominous, man, yeah. for Frankie Edgar to say that. And then we've got these results and the Corey Sandhagen result right before it. So I don't know. I think it's it's time for Frankie to have a talk with the family and, and find out where we're at here, because I don't necessarily know, aside from the from the paychecks. If there's right. a and real that, great reason for him to carry on doing this. And that is the thing you wonder, right? Is you go, what, what is still out there that you are chasing that is a realistic possibility? Is it just the paychecks? Because if it is, you know, everybody got to make a living. And this is the one thing he's done with his entire adult life. So it's like, what else do you want him to go do now? I I understand that. And we've seen, especially in this sport where... You can be a guy who is on TV for years and years and years, but then not end up with, I don't have to work another day in my life kind of money by the time you're 40. Like that can absolutely happen in MMA. I don't know exactly what Frankie's situation is. You get the sense that he's a little bit more comfortable financially, or at least you feel like he should be, but it's still, I don't get the sense that it's just a financial decision for him, right? Like when he's talking about fighting until he's on his deathbed, that doesn't sound like a guy saying, because I have to. Right. Yeah. You know, and yet what do you think? Like, are you, do you want to be the guy who is just out there 
as food for somebody else. Like you, you've seen that happen, especially if you're Frankie Edgar, you've been in this sport long enough. You've been watching it long enough. You, you've seen how that goes, man. Don't, you would think that that experience would then teach you that you don't want to be that guy. Yeah. All right. I got this next one here from Devin Scott, who appears to have written a memo to uh co-main event enterprises. He writes, okay. Jean Vellante versus Chris Barnett had the potential to be one of those heavyweight fights where you go get a snack break after the first round. Fortunately, we got five foot nine, two hundred and sixty-three pound Chris Barnett knocking out six foot three Jean Vellante with a damn spinning wheel kick. I'd like to expedite Mr. Barnett's application to be one of our guys. Let's go over the checklist real quick. Performs beyond what their body type suggests. Check. Highlight mm-hmm. reel finish. Check. Front flip butt drop celebration. (laughs) Check. Charisma. Check. Can dance in a style that would be befitting a scorpion bolo tie. Check. He says, I appreciate your attention to this application and feel free to add your own superlatives. Ben, at this point, we're sitting here Monday morning and my only question is, how is Chris Barnett not the biggest star in mixed martial arts? (laughs) Seriously, how how is it that all these people will tune in to every time to watch Conor McGregor uh, fight? And like nobody knows about Chris Barnett. This man has got it. He's he, he's got he's got aces across the board, man. He's sitting there. Yep. He's holding four aces, as far as I'm concerned. Chris Barnett should be the most popular man in sports. <laughs> they keep trying to get me to care about Greg Hardy, right? You yes. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Hey, Greg Hardy keep coming out here losing a bunch of heavyweight fights. And they keep trying to put him up there in prime spots. Give me give my attention to Greg Hardy. Meanwhile, the Beast Boy. First of all. First of all, do you see this man just breaking it down during his entrance? The the moves, the dance moves on Chris Barnett. I mean, how much do I have to pay to just like get Chris Barnett at a wedding? Just just to just to come tear it yeah. up on the dance. He didn't have to stay for the whole time. Yeah, what's like, his appearance fee? Let's yeah. find out what this man's appearance fee is and get him at our events. Yeah, you're having a party. You want somebody to come liven up the joint. Like, imagine everybody's standing around in the kitchen at, like, 11 p.m. at a house party, the way people are doing. Everybody's had a few drinks. Chris Barnett comes through the door, just giving you the shake, you know, tearing off his shirt, front flipping onto his butt. And he's just like, hell yeah, man. Like, light up the room, Chris Barnett. Also, when he shows up afterwards and explains that the way he came up with some of these moves is, you know, capoeira, taekwondo, stuff like that. But also, whenever he is watching or, like, playing a video game, like a fight video game or something where they're doing a move, and he's like, I know somebody had to wear one of those motion capture suits and actually do that move. And so when I see a cool move, I go, somebody must have been able to do it. Let me see if I can do it. And then he goes off and pulls it off in a heavyweight UFC fight and then explains that, in his mind, he is 170 pounds. Yeah. You can say what you want. The scale can say what it wants. In his mind, he's 170 pounds. And that, I'll say that's the kind of attitude that I think we could all use a little more of. You know? Like, whatever. You're some middle manager at work or whatever. In your mind, you're a Fortune 500 CEO. Yeah. Chris Barnett appears to be out here asking, why not me? Yeah. And the the answer is no reason, Chris. Go on and do it. Uh, You're you're, you're asking girls out at the club. You you know you're a solid six, maybe a six and a half. But in your mind, you're a 10. Why not me? Uh, 
Chris Barnett now 1-1 one one in the UFC after he caught a bad one against Ben Rothwell in his UFC debut, which would be a tough assignment for any damn buddy trying to make their first UFC fight. Now he gets this win over Jean Vellante in Jean Vellante's uh, retirement fight. Uh, nothing, nothing not to love about this man as far as I'm concerned. And since you brought his name up, I will say right now to the UFC folks listening down there in Las Vegas, because I know you're out there. If anyone breathes a word about you trying to get my man Chris Barnett to fight Greg Hardy, I will make signs and I will come down there and I will demonstrate in front of the UFC office building. Do not try to do this. Do not take this from us. We need Chris Barnett out there in this world, living this life. Let us have it. Number two, did you see when he came to the post-fight interview and was talking about how he likes to go online and research his opponents because he likes to find stuff that he can hate about them to, <laughs> to motivate himself. So he did a deep dive on Jean Vellante and then reported he couldn't find anything to dislike about Jean Vellante. He was like, he's a football coach. He takes care of his kids. He was like, I had, I had his football players uh, messaging me being like, this man is a legend. We love our coach. And then he was like, except one of those players needs to do a little extra running. Because he was like, maybe you can do me a favor and knock my coach out on Saturday night. <laughs> but it's just like you just watch Chris Barnett do these interviews, and it's life-affirming, man. The man, he's just got to talk about joie de vivre. Yeah. Man, that's, you're getting it all over the place from, from Chris Barnett. And I couldn't possibly love it anymore. And if you don't give me 10 fun fights in a row that this man can win, I don't even know what we're doing anymore in this sport. Man, how do you not hear that as John Volante and that show up to practice on Monday and be like, "All right, which one of you?" <laughs> That's right. We're all we're gonna do the Herb Brooks. We're all gonna run uh, sprints until until you cough up the name of the guy who wanted to see me lose this fight. Yeah, which one of you is the Judas who wanted to see the Beast Boy knock me out? But hey, man, and then again, Chris Barnett. Then he, he demands that the UFC puts John Volante on the mic, which like. I don't always love it when concussed guys get get interviewed after the fights, but like this is the man's retirement fight, man, yeah. and the and you got his opponent out there being like, I would like to concede my time to the gentleman from New York, like <laughs> just yes. cl- class all the way around from Chris Barnett. It's just amazing, amazing performance. Uh, ben, we got one that came in from Edmund Shabazian. Okay. Good to hear from him, I guess. Yeah, Edmund Shabazian writes, will I ever make the top 15 again? Also, why are people always hating on me? So, are, Shabazian. Are people hating on him? I mean, I don't know. Like, you know, he lost this one to, to Nasruddin Imavov, and he's now, for the first time, obviously, in his career, lost two in a three in a row. First th- uh, three losses of his professional career, Derek Brunson singing and dancing Jack Hermanson. And now this, I told you when they line you up with a 25 year old Dagestani guy, uh, who's 11 and three now overall, that's bad news, man. That's bad news for you. Don't take that phone call when they call you about the 29 year old, uh, streaking Dagestan guy. Don't take that fight. But I don't know. I don't, I mean, if anybody's hating on Edmund Shabazian for anything, I could see it being one of two things, but maybe that he's training down there with the, the red King, uh, the Dragon King, Edmund Targaryens, back at the at the Glendale Fight Club where they used to have Ronda Rousey. I could see some people, you know, maybe they just don't like that. And uh, maybe being one of the guys who for a time felt like he was one of the chosen uh, UFC up-and-comers that was going to get that shine from the, from the promotion. At this point, you got to throw that out the window, though, I think, with these latest bookings, man. Right. I mean, that's the thing is when you look at 
how, the kind of fights he's ending up in, it looks like someone is trying to ruin the guy. Because he's only 23. And, uh, I mean, maybe some of it is just this: these are the perils of too much hype too soon in this sport. Because he came up, he was undefeated. You know, he, he looked really good uh, finishing off guys like Jack Marshman and Brad Tavares. But then... You put him in that Derek Brunson fight, and it didn't feel like it was because you wanted to see Derek Brunson come out and, and win. But then Derek Brunson does. I mean, like, Shabazian looked phenomenal in the first round, but then Derek Brunson is a veteran of the sport with a well-rounded game, and he was able to, to put it on him and, and wear him down and finish him off. And then after that, it's Jack Hermanson, another, like, solid, experienced, top-level fighter. And then this one where you like, let's just find a tough-ass Dagestani guy who will elbow you in your head like it is made of candy. And then he's trying to get to the gooey good stuff inside. And, like, it seems like that's... Like, you're, you're setting this guy up to just get completely smashed before he even really finds his, his legs under him as a pro fighter, which that does seem a tad ironic when the whole thing was supposed to be like, okay, he's coming with the Dragon Kings, he's got Ronda Rousey as, like, his manager or whatever. It's like, it the thing that seems to be missing is some real forward-thinking career planning for Edmund Shabazian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he does seem like physically, like he has good tools, he has good gifts and everything. Like if some, if you give him a chance a little bit, it does seem like he could develop into something. But this this just feels like we're not really giving him a chance. Yeah, I, I don't I don't totally understand it either because you're right. Like the the quickest way to to take a guy who seems to have a, a high ceiling and a lot of potential and some good skills and run him straight into the ground is have him fight a bunch of a bunch of guys that are kind of out of his depth. And that sort of does seem like what's happening here with, with Edmund Shabazzian. I guess we'll have to, now that he's on this three fight losing streak, we'll have to see where, where he goes from here. If the UFC will continue to get him fights and who they want to match him up against with in the future, because uh, to the extent that there's any political capital to be gained by using Edmund Shabazzian as like a stepping stone, I think that's probably gone at this point. So now do you circle back and try to give him some fights where he can build himself back up? Like he's young enough and early enough in his career that he's certainly not out of it by any stretch of the imagination. So if you pulled an Aaron Pico here and we're kind of like, all right, let's slow our roll. Let's give this guy some fights where maybe he can build himself into something. He certainly wouldn't be a lost cause, but it, that's also, that also strikes me as kind of like a non UFC move at this point. But yeah. if anybody's worth it, it would probably be a guy like Edmund Shabazian, I would think. The other side of the coin here, Ben, we got a, an email here from Bono. I believe, of course, to use the lead singer of U2. Uh, he writes in, Ian Gary looks good, doesn't he? He seems to have all the attributes attributes to become a massive star. The nickname, the future, needs changing ASAP, obviously. But otherwise, how far do you think he can go? Uh, Ian Gary, Ben, is a guy that the, the Irish folks have been talking about for a while now. Uh, undefeated, coming out of Cage Warriors, made his UFC debut on Saturday, uh, defeated Jordan Williams uh, in his his first octagon appearance, uh, first round KO, just right before the bell at the end of the first round. But yeah, this is a guy in this division, 23 years old, if I'm not mistaken. And he's a, he's a guy that the people overseas have been real excited about and seems to be a guy who, again, like Edmund Shabazian at one point, seems to kind of have all the... Uh, all the, 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 the potential and uh, the highest ceiling you can think of. And here he is getting matched up against Jordan Williams, who I believe came in on the heels of back-to-back losses. He did. Yeah. One of them obviously to Nasordin Imovov and then to Mickey Gall. And now he loses to Ian Gary. So kind of like the other, other side of the spectrum here where you get the undefeated Irish prospect and you give him a guy that seems like the right kind of matchup for his UFC debut. 
Yeah, and he comes out and he looks good and lands a clean punch to get the knockout there. Uh, the, okay, is the future such a bad nickname? Because I, I know we sometimes urge people against any sort of like time-based nickname, especially right. if it involves like young, like don't ever be the young anything because that will change. Wonder Boy, that kind of stuff. But the future always exists, no matter where you are. There's That's always true, a but I think it, it has sort of like a um, baby-faced assassin kind of potential. Where if you're okay. Josh Barnett, eventually you have to wake up one morning and look at yourself in the mirror and be like, "Hmm, looking more like a war master at this point." <laughs> Graduated up from baby-faced assassin to war master. Yeah, uh, when you grow a big burly beard, that helps. Yeah. Right at this point, though. I don't think there's anything wrong with calling Ian Gary the future right now. Like maybe if we get to a point uh, where he feels more like the present, then we talk about maybe a switch. But uh, but this is okay with me for now. I've heard worse nicknames. Let's just say that. Yeah, I mean, and then it lends itself to a bunch of cool catchphrases where you're knocking people out, talking about the future is now, shit like that. You know, it's, it gives you some room. You could work with it. And also, like, the the future, just as a concept, like, is always a like the promise of the future is is always right there for you no matter how things how bad things might be going in the present there's always the future i agree uh so yeah looking that looking forward to ian gary seeing where he can go he's out here talking about how he thinks kamzat chemaev will be the champ and it'll be the two of them fighting for the belt so interesting to see if that if, if that uh prognostication can come true all right let's do one more let's squeeze this one in from dan alexander who writes well i understand both the sentiment and the strategy the idea as both mcgregor and covington have put it that it's quote all about the money seems like an excuse for some outrageous pre-fight talk once they're having their asses handed to them in the octagon please discourse now obviously ben we'll talk about uh colby covington a little bit later in the show but we see this a lot and we've talked about this before but uh outrageous pre-fight trash talk either at the time or later being justified by saying, Hey man, we're just out here trying to sell pay-per-views, which uh, is a a weird explanation when you think about it for a number of different ways. But especially if you're a dude like Colby Covington and you can lay some of this at the feet of Conor McGregor. And we just watched the Muhammad Ali documentary from, uh, from Ken Burns on doing the damn thing a couple weeks ago. And we talked a lot about how, despite the fact that Muhammad Ali has been this uh, symbol of social justice and this revolutionary kind of figure in our culture, he did a lot of kind of like racial trash talk leading up to some of his fights. You've seen obviously Colby Covington kind of make his thing that he has hitched his wagon to this Donald Trump ultra conservative movement in America. And now sometime later he's coming back and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to sell pay-per-views with Kamar Usman here. Yeah. I would proffer doesn't matter. Doesn't doesn't make any difference if what you're saying or what you're doing is what you feel in your heart or (laughs) if you're just trying to do it to make money. I'm not going to say it's worse because I don't know if you can get worse, but to me, it's the same. Well, especially if if your position is I was only acting like a dickhead for the money. Yeah, that's not good. No, that's not a and, good explanation. And, that doesn't make I, it go away, man. You're not, we're yeah. not like, Oh, okay. I got you. I get it. No, you know what? It's fine. It's actually fine. We thought about it. As long as you made a bunch of money, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, if you're a dickhead for pay, it still makes you a dickhead. Like it just means that you were 
working out a compensation package for your dickheadedness. But also, the one thing you shouldn't be able to do is come out and say on one to say like in close to somebody, hey, it was just about the money. Like, mm -mm, that's not going to work to make him feel better towards you or anything. And then you can't then afterwards turn right around, go to the press conference and be like, he's a cheating asshole. And like, I never, I, again, I didn't get a fair shake because it's like, man, we heard the other thing too, you know? Did you know that we, did you know there are microphones all around the cage? Did you know people heard that? Because you can't let down that mask and be like, Psst, I'm not really the asshole I am pretending to be. And then be like, oh, they need me on stage. Okay, real quick. Let me put it back on and go out there and be the asshole. It doesn't work like that, man. Like the, the one thing that you ought to be forced to do is to wear that mask everywhere. Like that, if that's the, the bargain that you want to strike, if that's the, the trade-off that you think is worth it. The same thing before, man. When Remember when he got jumped in the buffet line? When, when Usman my, and, and actually, Ali Abdelaziz it's my rolled favorite, up on him? My favorite Colby Covington moment to this he's day. He's standing there, there his, like wearing like his, his cargo, his cargo shorts. shorts and his t-shirt on. And he's got a look on his face like, man, I am not on the clock right now, yeah. you guys. It's just like, hey, I'm I'm this is my personal time. And it's like, no, man. For the the persona that you are trying to adopt, there is no such thing. Like you you adopt it under your own name. You go around telling people that this is who Colby Covington is. You don't get to just take it on, take it off, and put it on when it suits you. You have to wear it everywhere. That should be part of the deal, and they should all understand that when you do it, especially when you do it fucking poorly, like Colby Covington has done. And so, like, no, you don't get to just be like, hey. It's cool. Like, don't take anything I said seriously because, hey, if you're if you're doing it for the money, it means you're trying to to create this emotional response to you. It won't work if people think that it's all fake. Like, you you won't generate the response. And if you do generate the response and get the emotional response that you want, you can't then be like, but I don't want to deal with any of the fallout from it. No, man, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Remember the lead up to Mayweather McGregor where also there was a bunch of... of uh regrettably racial trash talk but like the whole thing was like we're doing this fight because we want to make a ton of money and man yeah. are we gonna make a ton of money off this pay-per-view bring the money belt out the winner of this fight gets it because we're gonna make so much money and the whole time Let's literally throw some money in the air the whole time i was sitting at home being like that's my money yeah that's our, our money, money they're talking about getting that's what they mean talking about taking our money it's just a weird weird promotional Weird way to we're do cheering it, it like yes you yeah. will have our money take our money um all right well that's gonna do it for listener mail this week we got a ton of good listener mail this week so thanks to everybody who wrote in sorry we couldn't get to more of them i would kind of like to just sit here and keep answering them but we yeah. got bigger especially and just so we could say stuff like the plant-based platypus yeah we got it we got a lot of good mail and we got to get on to other topics here but thanks everybody who wrote in and remember if you want to air your own question comment or concern to the co-main event podcast you do it by going to our website comainevent.com and clicking the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us remember you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper this show drops every monday afternoon for free in your timelines or podcast libraries and if you think we're having a good time right now you should check us out over on patreon patreon.com slash co-main event ben folks and i are over there with three additional podcasts all week we got the wednesday live chat on thursday we're doing doing the damn thing on friday we have the friday power hour uh, we have fun over there. We do the occasional live fight party and uh, we have a, a Patreon tier, a tier of giving for every budget. So check us out over patreon.com slash co-main event. 
if you want to join the team. We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash, an LA-based production duo. If you like what you hear from Foreign Cash, you can check out more of their stuff at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. And as you guys know, the word cash is C-A-C-H-E, foreign cash. Three rounds now, as usual, in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, we will try to find words for Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler. But frankly, it seems like the kind of fight that would be best described by like a Rorschach test or some kind of mid-century expressionist art or maybe like a funeral dirge composed by one of the great masters. But we'll do our best. And in round number two, in a very close fight for the strawweight title, you could, arg- you could argue Zhang Wai Li had the more impressive individual performance. But Rose Nama Yunus knew all the right moves to win a five-round championship fight. And she made all those moves. And still... And in round number three, perhaps the best metric we can use to describe the rematch between Kamara Usman and Colby Covington is that every second of every round, it seemed like Covington was trying as hard as he possibly could just to stay in the fight. And Usman? Eh, he was just kind of cruising. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but right now, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, I can't think of a better way to start round one here than to simply share Justin Gaethje's words in the cage from after this fight when he said, we are living in the wrong times. Let me tell you, me and him should have been fighting to the death in the fucking Coliseum. Uh, And normally I might eschew such sentiment here in the professional sports fighting world of mixed martial arts, but uh, gotta tell you, I watched this fight and then Justin Gaethje gets on the mic and says that. And my initial response was, yeah, yeah, that seems right. That seems right. It's so rare that a fight like this, a fight that we we looked at and we thought, fight of the year potential, absolute banger. These two guys are going to bring it. And then it goes out there and it's everything you thought it was going to be and maybe more. It was just like, it was so good. I don't even know what to really say other than the fact that yeah. it lived up to the hype and then some. Yeah, I, I that's what I thought in the immediate aftermath of this fight was my expectations were high very high and somehow it exceeded them even in a fight that didn't give us a finish yeah because here's where you might say chad everybody got to do their stuff justin gaethje got to almost lose before he then won you know michael chandler got to show you that he is tough as shit and that even after you know he takes a tremendous beating he can still just come out and pop you out of nowhere you know, everybody just like good old fashioned violence for the sake of violence. Uh, and a, as people have pointed out afterwards, Justin Gaethje himself, a guy who started off one and two in his first UFC fights after coming to the UFC with a little bit ahead of steam from what he'd done in another promotion. Michael Chandler now one and two in his first three UFC fights after coming with a head of steam. And yet... As was the case with Justin Gaethje, nobody is looking at Michael Chandler after those particular three fights, especially with this being the third, and going, well, he sucks. This was a bust. 
Nobody's saying that. Yeah, and nobody is saying I don't want to watch him again either. Like this right. is one of those rare times where, you know, you might have taken some some time off the old life meter or off the career meter with the damage you took in this fight if you're Michael Chandler, but zero people are looking at this and and thinking that Michael Chandler has uh, less watchability or less capital or less potential in the division now than he did before this fight, which is kind of remarkable. I didn't know that we would be having that conversation going into this thing, but you know, like I said at the top, it lived up. Both guys got to do their stuff and both guys come out of the thing kind of smelling like the rose, I think. Uh, Michael Chandler, I thought, won the first round and for much of the early going, he was obviously the more explosive athlete. Uh, Justin Gaethje was doing the thing we knew he was going to do. He was scoring consistently with his low kicks. Uh, he was landing that uppercut, which was nasty. Yeah. I think he proved himself to be the more technical striker. Uh, the low kicks that he always throws are just sneaky and deadly. Uh, I actually liked during this fight, Daniel Cormier pointing out that Justin Gaethje doesn't get enough credit for how technical he is. And Joe Rogan immediately saying he's very technical, but he's also crazy. And I was like, (laughs) okay, that's vintage Joe Rogan right there. Mm -hmm. Like a guy who has been taking a lot of heat lately for his commentary and other aspects of his life. But that was good Joe Rogan right there. Uh, there's a point in this second round, man, where Chandler sort of got lucky. They didn't stop the thing. Uh, when yeah. Gaethje floored him with that uppercut. Uh, but, you, you know, it was, it was a big Daniel Mergliata, I think, was in there with these guys. Uh, or, wait, no, it was, uh, it was uh, Mike Beltran. I'm sorry. Mike Beltran was in there as the referee. And, and Chandler was, was, was making moves and looking like he wasn't out of it. But if he had come in and stopped the fight right then, I don't think anyone would have asked too many questions about it. But instead, we get to go on. Like and and have this uh, this third round, which where frankly it seemed like Michael Chandler just kind of lost his mind in it. Yeah, you know, like I think nine out of ten UFC lightweights eat that uppercut from Justin Gaethje, and that's it. That that one should have been over right yeah. there. And 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 also like Justin Gaethje, I think where he had some some shaky moments there early on against Michael Chandler, and uh, it just shows you like the. The, the, what it takes to be at that level to use it, it's not just like that you got to be a good experienced fighter because kind of everybody you look around at that in, in the top 10, top 15 or so at the UFC lightweight division is that. Uh, and it's not just that you got to be like tough as shit because everybody's tough as shit too, but you got to be all those things all the time. And it's incredible like that the difference between those two guys, it's very small in that fight. It's not like one of them is absolutely blowing the other one away. Like they both come in there and there are, there are moments early on in that fight where it seems like it could swing in either direction. And when the, the margins are so razor thin in some of those matchups, I, it's got to feel especially tricky psychologically to go into those fights knowing that and having experienced that in your career. Because what do you tell yourself to give yourself confidence that you're going to, you can do absolutely everything right leading up to it, make a bunch of good decisions in the fight and still, you know, you eat one shot and it changes everything. And so it's kind of incredible to see both those guys put on that kind of a performance, especially knowing everybody is expecting you guys to have a complete slobber knocker. And yet both your careers kind of hinge on whether you win or lose in this moment to yeah. an extent. So you got to give us a crazy show and take a bunch of wild chances, but also don't lose. Yeah. <laughs> like that's an incredibly difficult spot to be in. Uh, and 
I don't know, maybe the right attitude is the one that Justin Gaethje has espoused before, which is to be like, look, I know fighting the way I do. I won't win them all, but I, you know, we'll, we'll worry about that later. We'll, we're going to dance with who brung us here. And it's exactly that kind of a style. Uh, because it's amazing to me that Michael Chandler is still there in the third round, still you know telling him, like, like getting hit with a good one and being like, all right, yeah, bring me more of that. And you think it's just posturing, and then he'll come back, and he still has some snap in his punches, at, even after all that damage that he's taken. You're like, okay, this guy is still in. That guy is still, like, a possible threat to get you. And But if you're Justin Gaethje, that is the exact way that you make the point, like, don't even come at me with this Islam Mahachev shit, bro. Yeah. Don't even talk this stuff about somebody else wins a fight against a lower ranked uh, lightweight and maybe they jump me in line for this t- next title shot. Like, no, that was a the perfect way to slam the door on that entire discussion. Because anybody sees that, they're going to be like, Gaethje got next. Yeah. I don't care who it is. Don't care who wins that title fight between Chucky Olives and Dustin Poirier. Whoever it is, Gaethje got next. Yeah, and I tell you what, I was spent by the opening of the third round when Michael Chandler somehow was out here harnessing the energy for like a scoop high crotch slam in the third round and Justin Gaethje just immediately takes his back. Just incredible stuff. Uh, it seemed like down the stretch in this thing, maybe Michael Chandler had realized that he was going to he was gonna drop this one on the scorecards if it went the distance. And so uh, he became a bit of a showman in there after that, dropped his hands. He was waving Gaethje in. He was waving uh, the fans on. He was, at the end of this thing, throwing, like, jumping, spinning kicks and shit. And I was just like, wow, man, that guy's in good shape. That Michael Chandler, <laughs> you wouldn't know to look at him, but that Michael Chandler is in good shape. Yeah, uh, how about that? But, uh, yeah, it seemed like, uh, you know, I thought he played it exactly right, too, and was a good sport afterward and all that. But I think you're right, man. We got UFC 269 coming up now on December 11th. Uh, with two title fights once again. And of course, the main event there, Charles Oliveira against Dustin Poirier. Uh, and regardless of who wins that one, it seems like Dustin Poirier, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Justin Gaethje should should have next. Uh, he's obviously fought Dustin Poirier before, a fight that you and I recently watched from back in 2018. We watched it over on our Patreon page. Wouldn't, Wouldn't argue mind watching with, it again. Right, running you know, that one back to... is just fine. I have no yeah. idea how Justin Gaethje has not fought Charles Oliveira at some point, but that would be a fresh matchup. So kind of either way that one turns out, I would be excited to watch uh, Justin Gaethje you have that one. And uh, Michael Chandler still alive and well in this division as far as i'm concerned as as more or less a top contender regardless of the loss yeah i agree you might want to take a little time after because that's just that's yeah. the kind of fight that seems like it could take years off your life yeah yeah you might want to listen to kamara usman take some take some time off to spend with the family after that one but uh it just the rare fight that exceeded our already high expectations so bravo yeah. to both those guys uh let's do are you fucking kidding me here ben and then we'll move on to round number two Ben, Dylan Dennis has been taking some L's recently. Oh, man. My man, you know, has the altercation with the with the bar bouncer. He's just, he's allegedly trying to get in to see his, his buddies from a wedding, but I, which I don't understand, couldn't get in. Maybe Dylan Dennis wasn't that well liked at the wedding either. I, I'm just spitballing. I'm just throwing out crazy ideas. But then this Saturday at UFC 268, he allegedly gets slapped backstage not by a fellow fighter but by mma manager ali abdelaziz allegedly slaps this man in the face and then if we can believe the accounts dylan danis is escorted out dylan danis is escorted out (laughs) 
by UFC security and according to a deleted tweet from Michael Bisping, banned from future UFC events, which you got to do some shit to get banned from the UFC, man. But uh, yeah, you know you are the asshole when you are the one who gets slapped and you get thrown out. You fucking kidding me? Dylan Dennis, what you doing? You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Man, for a guy who hardly ever fights anymore, he stays taking L's, man. Yeah, he has not fought since 2019, and he arguably needs a W worse than anybody else in this entire sport. It's crazy. You fucking kidding me? Chad, my, are you fucking kidding me? Tell me you saw this clip of the biggest of homies, Francis Ngannou, strolling around backstage. Yeah. And he, he walks right past Cyril Gaon, standing there, you know, and gives just a little glance over to the side. You, the camera's following Francis Ngannou, at least to start, as he walks down the hallway. He glances over to the side, just kind of keeps walking. And then the cameraman, excellent, like, curb your enthusiasm-style camera work, pans back to Cyril Gaon, making a, what the fuck face. Like, he's just going to act like he didn't see me standing here? Like, he, he looked right at me, kept walking, didn't even acknowledge that I am a person who exists in this world. And you could just kind of hear the... And just, like, panning in on his face. He seems genuinely hurt yeah. in that moment. Yeah. It's like, it is both somehow, an, uh, like, just an awesome, cool guy move on Francis Ngannou's part on some straight-up Ford Maddox Ford, a gentleman always cuts a cad bullshit just to give him that, that glance and then just keep on strolling right on by without a word. But then Cyril Gaunt, like, he even kind of raises his hand, like, with his mouth open, like, what? What the <laughs> fuck was that? Like, he can act like he doesn't know me? What the fuck? Are you fucking kidding me? You just, like, nobody needs to say a word in that moment. Everybody's emotions right there at the surface. Yeah. Well, and, uh... Uh, Cyril Gaon is standing there with Fernand Lopez. Yes. Who's like the, yeah. the guy who got brought Francis Ngannou into MMA and was his first trainer in Paris and brought him to the UFC. He was the guy, when I did my story on Francis Ngannou, they were sort of the two guys hanging out at Francis Ngannou's apartment, like smoking and joking, being bros. And now it's like they, that's just somebody that he used to know. Yep. I guess. They, you want to become Francis Ngannou's enemy, it means he's just, he going to barely glance at you as he walks on down the hallway. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Wow. All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad... Rose Namajunas had to put in a little more time at the job this time in the rematch against Zhang Wiley. Last time, you know, we're going to look low, kick high, get out of here in a little over a minute. This time, five minute, five rounds, full job of work. And yet, she has to get smart, has to get a little veteran savvy down there. She manages to get it done when she needs to, pulls out a narrow decision victory to retain the USC title. First of all, how'd you score this one? I mean, honestly, this is this was such a close fight, man. If you if you told me that you thought Zhang Wei Li won all three of those first rounds, 
I couldn't quibble with, with you that much, but I think, you know, it's just, it was another one of those fights where just like you see in the lighter men's division, sometimes both fighters are so fast and they're both exchanging combinations and everybody is landing and the grappling is back and forth. Uh, and all these rounds just seemed very close to me. I think Rose won the fourth and the fifth from the top. Pretty obviously that takedown that she landed in the fifth yeah. was as big a fight stealer, as big as like a signpost, as big a signpost moment in a fight that you will ever see uh, that takedown in the fifth. But I mean, it all kind of came down to how you scored the second round, right? I think because like the the first and third, I thought were were pretty solidly with with Wiley, but you know. This is like I said at the beginning of the show. This felt like one where maybe you could come away with it thinking that Wiley Zhang kind of had the more impressive performance, but that that Rose Namayunas hit all of the proper notes in order to win a five-round fight. Hit all of the proper notes at all of the proper times with Pat Barry and Trevor Whitman in her corner uh like kind of telling her to do it and she she executed and she wins the fight. Like I couldn't quibble with the decision. If I was Zhang Wiley, I might think maybe I got robbed a little bit. And if I was the UFC, man, I would start to wonder if maybe we had painted ourselves into a corner here a little bit with Zhang Wiley. Because like to give her this immediate rematch and have her come back and lose it, you kind of put yourself in like Max Holloway type territory here now. Yeah. Where like, uh, I don't know that you can you can have her fight Rose Namajunas again unless she is able to go out and like get another couple of wins over other people. So like if you were trying to position Zhang Wiley as your champion, which again, we don't know that's what the UFC was trying to do, but like, it seemed like they were pretty high on her. Like, man, she's, she's in kind of a tough spot at this point. And I kind of had to laugh, to be honest with you, that John Anik, who, you know, I, I love the man's work. He's the best announcer we've had in mixed martial arts. He began this fight by asking, will we get closure? And I was like, closure from what man? Like, Rose yeah. Namajunas knocked her out the first time. Like, did the UFC set up this fight because they thought that in the first one, Zhang Wiley would have won had she not lost? Because if so, man, you put her in kind of a rough spot now that she's got back-to-back -back losses to Rose Namajunas, uh, who just kind of keeps seeming like she's getting better and better. And by the way, does not turn 30 years old until next summer. Yeah, I mean the the closure thing was a good one because it was like, uh, will we get closure or will we set up a trilogy? Was the the thing he was saying, and you're right that it was like, I don't know, somebody goes out there and kicks somebody in the face in the first round, and knocks them out, like that does feel like the matter is kind of closed. Yeah, and I thought most we had other, closure the first time. Can't, most you other can't instances. have more closure than that in this sport. But then this fight was so close that if anything, you feel like there's a little less closure than than you started with. Yeah. And especially like this one, I scored at 3-2. In which direction? I'll never say. <laughs> because it was it was just one of those fights where that's a 3-2 fight. And it's just, it's up to us to argue over which, who gets the three and who gets the two. Yeah. And you're, you know, you're not going to convince anybody uh, of any other position than what they felt like they saw that first time. And especially some of those rounds where it comes down to, Hey, Rose ends up on top for most of the round. And you could argue, yeah, she's not doing a ton. She's not doing a ton of damage from the top, but you also go, yeah, but then what do you do? Do you give it to, to Wiley? Because she's on her, her back, not doing a ton of damage either. Like it's just, it's so tough to call some of those rounds. But then you look at what Rose Namajunas' title reign and just like her her time at the top of the division, 
uh, either as like a top challenger or as the champion itself has looked like. And it's like, you know, you had the two fights back-to-back with Yuana and Jacek, two fights back-to-back with Jessica Andrade, and now two fights back-to-back with Zhang Wiley. And so it feels like there's just a a hunger to see her do something else. Yeah. Kind of anything else. It's time to break out the T-Pain meme for the UFC matchmakers as it pertains to Rose Namajunas' career, man. Let this woman do something else. We've already seen it. Do something else. And yet, the fight that... If this worked like a real sport, like where, you know, you win the the quarterfinals and you move on to the semifinals, if it worked like that, then the... an obvious thing to do would be Carla Esparza next, which is itself a rematch. Granted, a rematch from like seven years ago. So you don't have that same fatigue of like, oh, we just saw this kind of thing. Plus, it's a rematch where she lost, Rose lost the first one. And so like, here's a chance to go and get one back. Uh, and the UFC, though, already kind of talking sideways out the mouths about what we're going to do next. When no. it seems like... I mean, I get it. In a way, you're looking at gate receipts. You're, you're thinking about who's going to bring you those sweet, sweet pay-per-view buys. And you look at Carla Esparza and you'd be like, that ain't it. Like, she's not the one who brings a ton of hype to these fights. And yet, how do you justify at this point doing anything else without basically saying, uh, the wins and the losses we view as mere suggestions? Right. And it's not like the UFC badly needs those gate receipts or pay-per-view buys at no. this point. You make that the co-main on some other pay-per-view, you probably do just as well as you would with it with anything else. Like I, it feels to me like Rose Namajunas has earned that if that's what she wants is to like have, you know, to let her do something else again, to like give her some fresh matchups, let her try to get that win back from from Carla Esparza. I don't I don't understand how you would I mean, I don't know. Other, I don't know what other direction you go. Rose Namajuna said that she thought Carla Esparza would be next before this fight. So uh, I don't know what else you do or what else you book or who you bring in to have her fight. But I would like to see Rose Namajuna move on to some new business. Frankly, after this series of rematches that she has had, and if you somehow messed around and like did another Zhang Wiley fight or something like that, then I would start to get a very specific, you are going to make Rose Namajunas fight this person until she loses kind of vibe. And that's not what you want if you're out here trying to book your mixed martial arts promotion. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, the... Dana White's comments about how, like, uh, you know, it's not a good idea to sit around and wait for title shots kind of thing. Like, like that makes you wonder, like, is there a uh, a vindictive element to this? Is that what you're trying to say? Like, hey, she should have just be out here taking fights because we told her to. And to spite her, we're not going to give her a title shot, uh, even if she deserves it. Because other people have sat around and waited for title shots, and it worked out pretty okay for them. Yeah. You know? It's, I mean, it's, it's been tried before. It's, 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 it's worked. It's very surprising that the man who owns the UFC would be of the mind that you should just fight as many times as you can and make as much money for the UFC. That's the thing to do. It's very surprising that he would feel that way. Uh, ben, did Rose Namajunas say during her post-fight interview that she wants to start Earthship Academies? I'm sorry, what was that? I believe she said, I just want to fight Earth or uh, I just want to start Earthship Academies when she was asked in the post fight by Joe Rogan, what she wanted to do next. I, I feel like I understand what all those words mean individually, but together in that order, I don't, something doesn't add up for me. Do you know what that means? Um, 
Well, I have the internet in front of me. You're going to pl- plug it into the internet. See if the internet can tell us what that means. Earthship Academy. Uh, the Earthship Biotexture Academy offers exen- extensive training in Earthship design principles, construction methods, and philosophy. Okay, see, you're just you're still telling me words that okay, I know. But you have but recently like talked to Rose Namajunas about her love of the Earth, about farming, and all this stuff that she's into down there in Colorado. Farming. She's big into okay, sustainable so, farming. Okay, I mean, that's, I think that's where we're going with this. That's why I asked you the Earthship question. Like, I thought maybe you from your earlier conversations would know what an earthship Academy was. Cause it either sounds like an awesome sci-fi Harry Potter kind of thing, like, like star Trek and Harry Potter mashed together, or it's a bunch of people trying to save the planet, which, you know, either way it seems cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was really hoping that we were talking about a rocket ship made of dirt. Mm-hmm. Earth ship. Mm-hmm. Hunk of earth flying through space. Why not? I mean, if the rule says an earth ship can't leave orbit, right? If you're Rose Namajunas, your two options are, I don't know, maybe fly through space aboard a ship made of solid dirt or come back and fight Carla Sparza. She's, she's game for either. You know what? As far as like outside interests go for a UFC fighter and a UFC champion, uh, let's just say right off the bat that sustainable farming is kind of the most wholesome-ass shit and the least offensive shit that we have no right to even expect. Like, normally, uh, you, you you find out what a UFC champion gets up to in their off time, and it's going to be, you know, like, video games, guns, uh, attack dogs, shit like that. Somebody else is going to come along and be like, I'm really into this sustainable farming initiative. Like, fuck, by all means. Yeah. By all fucking means. Also, though, before we move on from this topic, did you hear Zhang Wiley talking about how she had prepared for the the acrimonious U.S. crowd? Like the, the hostile reception that she would get, which we had heard, you know, she maybe was not totally prepared for the first time she fought Rose. And the, uh, her, her former manager, I believe, was talking about how she had heard a bunch of racist shit on her way to the cage and back from the cage. I, I've all this been to the stuff. UFC before. I heard yeah. a bunch of racist shit when I was there. And how like she actually like built it into her preparation, a hostile US crowd. And she was like, hey, I I understand the way like I had to it took me some time to understand that it's not like they dislike me because I was confused by that. I didn't know what like what reason I had given them to dislike me, but it's just because I'm not one of their their countrymen. And you go, wait a minute I remember watching Rocky IV, how the Soviets are real hostile to Rocky when he comes out there. But then, by the end, you know, I can change, you can change, everybody can change. That's the whole takeaway lesson. Except in real life, we're learning, like, nope, people still going to be assholes to her. Like, that's just, that's just fucking sad, man. That yeah. we make it so that somebody, like a, a Chinese fighter, has to prepare in her training camp for racist ash invectives to be hurled at her like that's part of her psychological preparation for fighting an american in the united states of america because that doesn't say great things about us no it's a sad commentary and zhang wiley seems like a lovely person from what we know about her to this point and uh that is a sad commentary and welcome to sports in the united states i guess that's gonna go for round number two we'll be right back with round number three
Ben, it's not like Colby Covington didn't have a bunch of nice moments in this fight against Kamaru Usman, because he absolutely did. But like I said at the start of the episode, it kind of felt like he was that cat. You know, the, the hang in there poster that everyone had on their walls in the, in the 80s where the cat is just hanging by its claws. It kind of felt like what Colby Covington was doing here, just hanging by his claws, trying to stay in this fight while Kamaru Usman had it in cruise control and was just, you know, bettering him at every turn. Uh, Colby Covington, to his credit, rallied to have some good moments down the stretch here in the final three rounds. Like, weirdly, I feel like his best moments came after we had all kind of decided that Kamaru Usman was going to win. And so that was, you know, some bad timing from him. But at the end of the day, you emerge with the same welterweight champ we had going in. Kamar Usman wins this thing, unanimous decision across the board, uh, 48-47 times two, 49-46 once, and now has has vanquished Colby Covington twice. So I guess my opening question is, where does this leave Kamar Usman? Because people are saying some pretty wild things about uh, where we should think about him in the grand scheme of the welterweight division and the history of this sport. And what do we do with Colby Covington now, who seems to be a damn good fighter, just not good enough to be the champion right now? Yeah, and I mean, to address the Colby Covington issue first, it seems like after getting dropped, what was in the second round where he gets dropped and again feels Kamaru Usman's punching power, and after that point where it's... He clearly knows, I got to be careful. I can't take clean shots from Kamar Usman. But Usman, as the fight is going on, is increasingly confident that if he has to, he can take clean shots from Colby Covington. And like Covington is trying to find a way to push the pace like he likes to do normally. But also, you can tell that he is wary. He knows that I can't hang my chin out there and get clipped by this guy. Because I've just it's going to lead to nothing but trouble for me. And his fighting style doesn't have a way to deal with that necessarily. It's kind of like being uh, like a run-heavy football team. If you fall behind, it doesn't always give you like you, your style doesn't lend itself to like big comebacks, amassing big points in a hurry to to erase a deficit. And he has kind of that same thing where his style is momentum, pressure, pace. Yeah. And if he can't do those things because he has to worry about like, well, I can't run right into that guy's fist. He's going to knock me out. Then he has to have, has to adjust and find some other way to win and some other way to fight. And he just couldn't quite find it. Uh, and I think that, I mean, he still beats a whole bunch of welterweights in the UFC division right now, but there's just no interest in seeing him fight Kamar Usman again. And it seems like Kamar Usman could very well be the champ for a while. Yeah. Uh, there was actually a moment even in round two, even before Covington got dropped and you got the sense that if there was a minute or 45 seconds still left on the clock in that second round, when Kamara Usman landed those shots, that that thing might well have been over. Uh, but there was a time even before that in the second round where Colby Covington threw a one, two combo and Kamara Usman slipped both of them while barely moving and just blasted Colby Covington up the middle with an uppercut where during that exchange, I thought to myself, thanks for coming, Colby, uh, because this one <laughs> seems like it's over. But like I said, he rallied and had a nice showing, and I think that all of that is to his credit, and he is a good fighter who should continue to have, you know, fight the people in, in 
in the contender ranks, but at this point has had these two losses to the champion. And I think it will take some time to, to rehabilitate him into a place where he can fight for the title. Again, the more interesting question I think is Kamara Usman because people are telling us Kamara Usman is the greatest welterweight of all time. Uh, which I don't think he is uh, Dana White, just like he always does. And he, every time a dominant champion fights in the UFC is telling us this guy is either the greatest of all time now, or is knocking on the door of being the greatest of all time. And I'm just not seeing it yet. I see a guy who, who like is incredibly good. And it technically speaking, maybe is the best welterweight we've ever seen, but like, I'm not sure he has a resume at this point that can, that can tempt me with boosting him above George St. Pierre or ensconcing him as the greatest at any weight of all time or what, what have you. And so the question becomes, what do you do with the guy? Because I've, you know, he's 20 and one overall. He hasn't lost since 2013. He's undefeated in the UFC. He keeps whipping these welterweights. You say we're sending him the best welterweights we can find. And he's beating them over five rounds without ever really feeling like he, he cranked the volume all the way up to 10. What do you do with the guy? Because my feeling is, Kamar Usman has sounded like he's not going to be around forever, especially right now. He wants to go spend some time with his family. He said some touching things about his daughter, which was, was nice to hear. But what do you do with the guy? I feel like you got to find something big to do with Kamar Usman basically right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you need to find something to do with him right now, especially when I heard him at the post-fight press conference. Uh, you could really sympathize with him when he was talking about how I've been away a lot this year, fighting yeah. a lot. I mean, like... You don't see the, the, every single UFC champion who clocks three title defenses in a year when, you know, like in, in less than a year, really. And so when he's talking about all this time away from his daughter and he's like, she's seven years old, like, you know, we both have daughters around that same age where you're, he's right. Like they do really notice when you're gone and want some explanation as to where the hell you are. And he's spending a lot of time away for these fight camps. And he says like, hey, I need to be around a little bit more for a while. I don't think that's the worst thing you could do at all because Kamaru Usman goes away for a little while, goes home for a little while, spends some time with his family and let welterweight figure out who it's going to send as its next welterweight at this point though. Like if it's, if it's Kamzat Shemaev, that might feel like a big deal. But if you're like, I don't mean to imply that Kamaru Usman needs to get back in the cage immediately. I don't think he does. And I don't want to see him do that, but I feel like his next fight should be something momentous if you were going to continue to feed me this line that he's the greatest welterweight of all time and he is potentially the greatest of all time at any weight you got to give me something that feels big give me something that feels special with this guy and what that is i don't know but like if he's just going to come out here and 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 fight the next version of colby covington or whoever is at the top of the heap at welterweight i don't know man he's gonna have to have a bunch more of those fights if if I'm t- if I'm going to accept him as the greatest of all time, I'll, he seems good enough that I want to see him do something interesting and meaty and eye-opening. Well, I mean, here's the thing: you got Kamaru Usman at the top, right? The UFC rankings on the at least the UFC's own official rankings as of right now look like this: Colby Covington number one, Gilbert Burns number two, Leon Edwards three, and then it's Vicente Luque, Stephen Thompson, Michael Chiesa, guys like that down the line. Um, if you're Leon Edwards, you're probably going like, "Hey, don't go too far." Right. Like, I, cause I'm because I'm playing. You know, I gotta win one more. Fine, but then I'm. You're not gonna win one more me to death. You know, you're not gonna be able to tell me forever. Like, hey, this one and then title shot. Okay, one more and then title shot. Like, 
I need the title shot after this next one if I win. And so he is probably going to be feeling like, I want my shot. I've earned my shot. Where is it? And, you know, you could understand. Like, in some ways, maybe it would simplify things if he lost. And then you could be like, okay, we're starting over. We're, we're taking new applications at welterweight. But I, I do, I get what you're saying that you need to feel something like, we have somebody that presents a new, big, scary challenge for Kamaru Usman. And usually right. the answer for that has been, like, have him go up and wait, super fight against another champ in another division. You know, he and Israel Adesanya aren't really into the idea of a super fight against each other. So that seems like a little bit of a hard sell to begin with. Uh, I think maybe the answer is just, like, giving it some time and seeing how things develop in that division. Because who knows, if you can get Kamzat Chemaev a couple quick fights and he keeps demolishing people and the next thing you know it's you know june of uh 2022 and he's sitting in the top ranked spot at welterweight after a couple more absolute wreckages of people that might feel like a big scary challenge like the the young guy coming up coming after kamaru usman yeah but it is a tough thing now because when i hear dana white out there being like oh no he's he's better than gsp like he's the best right now and it, all i hear is he's the guy we can make money off now so he's the guy that we're going to push right the other guy we can't make money off him anymore and so we're just we're ready to to shovel some dirt onto his legacy uh if it means creating a higher mound for the other guy to stand on and but i don't know if anybody's really buying it like you you do need to have that one big rival that you overcome and i don't know if colby covington necessarily ever captured enough of the public's imagination to feel like that right uh in in a way it's, i feel like you almost do a disservice to the guy if you're just out there blowing smoke about his position in the history of the sport or whatever but i suppose if kamar usman was around long enough to run a gauntlet that included Leon Edwards, Vicente Luque, maybe Michael Chiesa, and Kamzat Shmaev, that would be impressive. That would be a very impressive resume. I just feel like he is he's talented enough and he's kind of blowing the doors off everyone that I would love to see him face a challenge that felt really special. And you look around the the UFC landscape right now, and I just don't know what that is, unless it is indeed Chmaev at some point in the future. But I feel like you need to put some more road under Chmaev before he starts to feel that way. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't feel like you're there yet. All right, let's do just saying stuff, and then uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Why don't you do your just saying stuff first? Because I feel like mine's going to have something to say about yours. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Very well then. Uh, well, we saw Dana White at the yeah. post-fight press conference come out there. Somebody asked him if he had seen the Canelo Alvarez fight, which happened the same night as UFC 268, and Dana White said, "Yeah, he'd watched it at cage side." Uh, assumedly on his flip phone or whatever it is he's carrying around. No, we saw days. you didn't say we saw an image like somebody took from behind him in the crowd where you can see him clearly watching it on a like a computer screen. Oh, they brought him a screen, like a nice. monitor. Yeah. Reporters asked him if he paid for it, <laughs> and Dana White was like, he basically was like, uh, sure. Uh he he basically gave the same answer that somebody gives you if you're like, hey man, you still on that diet? <laughs> <laughs> Still doing that diet that I that I you were talking about a few weeks ago, and I guess number one, Ben, like you could use this as evidence that Dana White doesn't care even about his own product. That he's sitting there, he's watching Canelo Alvarez at UFC 268. You could you could make that you could make that point, or you could say, you know, uh, well, it's 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 hypocritical of him to like dog these pirates all the time who are stealing the UFC event, talking about how basically like he's going to become deputized and kick the door down at their house and arrest them for pirate in the UFC. <laughs> you can make that point. You can make that point. 
I'm just saying, I don't feel like Dana White has ever felt more relatable than in that moment (laughs) where he was like, yes, I watched it. And someone was like, did you pay for it? And he was like, far as you know, I did. Far as you know. Just saying. I feel like that's a superhuman moment for the UFC president. I'm just saying, and I wrote about this, people could read about on comainevent.com right now, but I broke down the reasons to believe that he did pay for it, reasons to believe he didn't. And my conclusion, Chad, is that Dana White has no fucking idea if he paid for that or not. Dana White isn't sitting there pulling out, like opening up a, a laptop and you being like, you don't think he got it on his credit streams. card? <laughs> like, or, and yeah, and he's not going to showtime.com, like taking out his credit card there at Cade's site and being like, 441. Like, he's not doing any of that shit, man. So, he what said you're telling a- me is that somebody in a tuxedo, <laughs> a waiter wearing a tuxedo and white, white gloves, gloves. Yeah. brought one of those like metal serving dishes with the domed top. <laughs> Brought it out to Cage side, set it in front of Dana White and said, Mr. White, your pay-per-view for the evening and like lifted it off. And then the screen was just in there showing the Canelo fight. He said to some UFC underling, I want to watch this Canelo fight. No, during my, during my fights, I want there to be a screen that shows me the Canelo fight so that I can watch it while these other assholes are, are fighting for UFC titles in front of me. I got a hundred grand riding on this thing, man. I need to watch this fight. Make it so. He was on some Captain Picard shit, just being like, I want to watch this fight, make it happen. And then it was up to whoever else to decide how we are going to get a screen in front of Dana White that shows the Canelo Alvarez fight as it's happening. That's all he cared about, man. He yeah. didn't specify how that shit was going to happen. He doesn't, he doesn't, he wouldn't know how to get a pirated stream of some shit if he wanted to, man. Dana White, I'm telling you, doesn't know how to set an alarm clock in his own house. He's too rich for that shit. He is 52 and he is rich. Those two things add up to equal you not knowing how to do a goddamn thing for yourself, especially technology wise. There is no way he could set up his own illegal stream of this fight. And he, he's also, like, not going to get out his credit card and order the shit. So, like, somebody else did that shit for him. And he's just, in the moment, that was the first time he even thought about, did we pay for it? Did we get this? And I'm, I'll bet they did. Solely because a UFC underling was like, well, I don't want to be the one he turns and angrily at with his face turning different shades of red when the stream craps out. So, like, let's go ahead. Let's just put it on his credit card. He'll never notice. He his credit notice card, 70 come on. bucks. There's no way they put it on his credit card. They put it on the <laughs> UFC company account. If you ask Dana White, like, hey, what do you spend on food in a given month? I don't think he could ballpark it within $10,000. <laughs> There's no way he's going to know. Like, he's not aware of whether you paid for some shit, you didn't pay for something. He just said, make this thing happen in front of me and then waited for it to happen. He didn't even consider the question until some reporter asked him. That's what that uh was before he said yes. Was it him just realizing like, uh, never, it never occurred to me to even ask if we were paying for it. Yeah. I'm just saying. Just saying. You make a compelling case. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Remember, we'll be over at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event all week leading up to this weekend's action. So check us out over there. As for right now, though, thanks, everybody, for listening. We are done. We are through. We are out. So the intern that has to get the pay-per-view for Dana White, do you think that, like, Dana White watches it on the intern's laptop? Do you think the intern is like, oh, does it have to be on my laptop? Or do you think there's, like, a laptop in the UFC that has, like, a piece of duct tape on it that has, like... 
a piracy laptop written on it in Sharpie, and that's the one they use? Or like, well, I mean, if you see the, the photo that somebody took from behind it, uh, you can see it's like he's looking at a monitor, went full screen, you know, we're on full screen mode to watch it. So I don't know, I don't know what the actual source device was or something, but I think they could probably be pretty secure of the knowledge that Dana White doesn't know how to like hit the escape key and get out of the screen. There's some intern who's like, oh, I gotta log out of my email, so he doesn't see my email since I'm Morgan. I gotta, like, I gotta close my Twitter. He's like, oh man, this is a hassle. Comes back all covered in chip crumbs, probably. I don't know. 